The world is marking the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. And the Palestinian people continue to stand strong after 11 days of massacres by Israeli forces. Today, we'll talk about the mass movements that have developed around the issues of racist police violence and the oppression of Palestinians, and how these movements have changed the world. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's May 25th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And once you subscribe, register for our patrons-only seminar with Brian Becker this Wednesday, May 26th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. That's tomorrow at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Supporters can ask Brian questions beforehand and live on the seminar. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly every Friday. Brian, today is the one-year anniversary. It's been one single year since the murder of George Floyd, which really rocked the entire planet. Quite a year. Quite a year. I'm going to start with a quote from Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the Russian Revolution. There are decades when nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. Now, Lenin's quote, was from 1917, because decades were happening right then and there where the Russian people, and in particular women workers in St. Petersburg, were leading strikes demanding bread. And they were demanding relief from all of the suffering imposed on the Russian people because of World War I. Millions had died. The land was becoming impossible to farm. The farmers, at least many of the male farmers, were away on the front lines killing and being killed by workers and peasants from other countries. So the women workers on March 8th went on strike demanding relief, and that strike spread, and it was joined by others. And within a few days, a regime that had lasted centuries, the czarist monarchy in Russia, was gone. And that amazing year started of 1917, where after the revolution that toppled the czar was unable to, through its new government, the provisional government, find a way out of World War I, where the United States and Britain and France forced the provisional government to continue its alliance, its part in the inter-imperialist war, that revolution kept going. It kept going and getting stronger, becoming more radical. And eventually, by November 7th, there was the Socialist Revolution and Lenin came to power. It was a short period of time in which everything happened after centuries when almost nothing happened. Not decades, but almost centuries. Now, George Floyd's murder was not an unusual event in the United States. Since George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin, A thousand more people have been murdered by police in the United States, disproportionately black people, Latino people, working class people, poor people. Rich people are not being killed in the streets by the police. The police have a function and a license to be judge, jury, and executioner with qualified immunity, really against a class in America, the working class, and disproportionately against the black working class. But what changed was not, again, the one more killing by the police. It was the uprising in Minneapolis that then spread to every city, big and small, in the United States. And then on June 1st, 
when Donald Trump tried to get control of the situation and had a conference call with all of the governors in all 50 states and told them, if you don't brutalize and crack down on these protesters in your city, if you don't bring them to heel, we're going to send the American military to your state. We're going to deploy U.S. troops against U.S. citizens and others in the United States who are fighting for justice. And when he did that, and on that same day, used the same police forces to clear Lafayette Park and H Street right north of Lafayette Park of peaceful protesters in the media so that he could have his picture taken in front of St. John's Church with a Bible. I mean, he used and employed all of that violence against peaceful people so he could have his picture taken just you know minutes after that notorious press conference. Instead of it repressing or intimidating the people, the people really rose up. That's when the nationwide uprising against racism went into an even higher level of struggle. And since then, and this is what we want to talk about, since then, the political climate in the country has shifted and changed. It's been a remarkable year. But in the last two weeks, we have also seen something that was never witnessed before in U.S. history, which was an uprising of Palestinian and Arab people and their allies in the streets against the Israeli, U.S.-backed Israeli bombing of Gaza and murder of Palestinians and you know, forced evictions of Palestinians from their homes, ethnic cleansing. And you can see by the coverage in the U.S. media, and it you know, is an admission by the ruling class media, by the capitalist media, that what's been happening in the last two weeks with this uprising of Palestinians in the United States and everywhere, that it's very connected to the nationwide uprising against racism that took place last summer. And this is a sign or an indicator or a revelation, in fact, about how change happens. It starts from the bottom up. It happens with the grassroots. It happens when the people who normally aren't part of politics, who aren't part of the political equation, suddenly become actors on the historical stage and show that they are the power greater than all other powers. And in fact, their movement for justice becomes a contagion and spreads to others who are also oppressed. And, you know, we've seen this over and over again in American history. The black freedom struggle in particular was a detonator that inspired other mass movements. I mean, the civil rights movement that started with the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955, it didn't start there, but entered a new stage and grew and grew and grew. That inspired young people to take to the streets against the war in Vietnam. It inspired the creation of the women's liberation movement in the 1960s. When you look at Stonewall and the uprising of gay and lesbian and bi and trans people that took place in New York City that really started the what was then called the gay rights movement, all of this was a consequence of the sort of detonator effect, the ripple effect of the black freedom struggle. And we've seen it again in the year 2020. Esther, I mean, you've been covering these issues here on the ground in your show that comes out on Friday on Pacifica here at WPFW. On the ground, you are on the ground. You are like a remarkable figure in DC journalism because you are on the ground talking to the people in Washington, DC, who are trying all the time to make things happen. Usually the demonstrations here, while very important, very interesting, are also normally pretty small. Again, this was a year where everything changed. Absolutely. And as you were talking, Brian, I thought about how the reckoning on race and racism was really just that, you know, involving kind of like this mass education into the history of policing, you know, how today's existence, not only in terms of policing our communities, the criminal injustice system, but all these systems of inequality and oppression that are bred by capitalism, how they all came to be, because we could see even just in this popular education, people talking about white supremacy, people talking about the legacy of colonialism and slavery, 
and genocide. And that's how so many activists, so many people in the street understand the link between what is happening here in the United States and what is happening in Palestine, what is happening in Venezuela, Colombia, Cuba. And so it's just that, you know, what you're saying. And one of the things that I was looking at was how the street momentum translated into movement in legislatures by lawmakers over the past year, because I believe the movement demanded that there be a policy response. And the call was to defund the police and for a community control of the police. And I actually don't maintain that there's a conflict between those calls, but the uprising resulted in at least you know 18 states enacting new laws on police conduct and a ban on chokeholds. And that is kind of gaining traction around the country because of how George Floyd was tortured and murdered by Derek Chauvin. And most of these new state laws were passed like in the Midwest, in the West and the Northeast. In the South, Virginia was the only state to ban no-knock warrants that police, you know, enter a home without a warning. And it's kind of like a Brianna's Law, named for Brianna Taylor, the black woman who was shot and killed by police last March in her Louisville apartment. And Brianna Taylor's name was a big part of the movement for Black Lives and its uprising against racism. So some of these other laws, for example, require investigation at the state level for officer-involved deaths. Several states are requiring now appointing a state attorney general rather than a local district attorney to investigate the violent episodes involving police and requiring police who witness an officer applying excessive force to step in. And so, you know, looking at even this current case of Andrew Brown in North Carolina, that the local prosecutor handled that case and is already just exonerated the police officers involved. And we know that in the case of Derek Chauvin and in George Floyd's death, you know, the three other officers on the scene are going to be going on trial in June because they did not step in and they did not stop Derek Chauvin from murdering George Floyd. So all these laws being passed are in direct relationship to the demands of the people for accountability that, you know, people came in the streets during the pandemic. All these things are very much connected. People saw how the government, the state and corporations were allowed to kind of keep going without providing healthcare, without providing income, without providing a guarantee of housing for people. And so all these issues came together and they can say, you know, all these things are going on, but you're not going to kill us in the street. You're not going to, you know, kneel on our neck for nine and a half minutes and murder us on YouTube. And then there be no response and there be no mass movement of the people. Walter and Nicole, I want to go at least briefly back to where we started here on June 1st. That was just a few days after the murder of George Floyd. The reason I want to do this is both of you were not only, you know, journalists, you were also in the streets. And what happened on June 1st and in the days afterwards really changed it changed the equation because the repression directed against protesters instead of stopping the movement accelerated the movement. That's one of these moments where repression actually has the opposite impact. Now, I'm going to ask you in a moment, Nicole, to talk about what actually happened on that historic June 1st date, which really was the transitional moment for the uprising. But Walter, let's start with you because you were part of a protest in Philadelphia. And I want you to describe what actually happened on that same day, June 1st, Monday, June 1st, and then what happened afterwards, because it shows it was a clear demonstration that how under some circumstances, fierce, vicious, violent repression, which would normally just scare the daylights out of people and make them get out of the streets, has the opposite effect. Go ahead. Yeah, I think this is such an important lesson to take away from this uprising because the repression in Philadelphia and across the country was so fierce, but that did not deter people from coming out. And, and as you're suggesting, and some cases, in a lot of cases, it actually made the movement more intense. So on June 1st in Philadelphia, there was a very large demonstration demanding justice for George Floyd, maybe 10,000 people in total. 
We were marching around downtown Philadelphia. And then at a certain point, the demonstration began peacefully protesting, marching on the highway on I-676, which runs through the center of downtown Philadelphia. So the demonstration got down to the highway. People were in a celebratory mood, completely peaceful. And then all of a sudden, totally unprovoked, the police began launching round after round after round of tear gas into the crowd, rubber bullets. And there's just horrific video footage that came out, for instance, of a protester kneeling with their arms in the air, and then a police officer walks up to them, pulls down their mask, and pepper sprays them in the mouth. I mean, the the attack on this peaceful demonstration was so, so brutal. And I mean, I was personally there for this part. Like, there is an embankment on the side of the highway with a very tall wall or fence, essentially, at the top of it. And then hundreds and hundreds of peaceful protesters were trapped up against the side of this embankment, trying to disperse, trying as hard as they can to disperse. But the cops kept firing canisters of tear gas into this trapped crowd. I mean, it was just such extreme brutality. And then they lied about it. The police chief went on TV and said, well, this is because there is a state trooper car stuck on the highway and it was being attacked by these violent demonstrators and they feared for their lives. But then the dash cam video came out from that police car and showed that, I mean, far from attacking it, people were barely even looking at it as they marched by. So it's this huge scandal It completely outraged the whole city. And so many people were so angry that the next weekend, so five days later, that Saturday, 100,000 people came out to march in one of the biggest demonstrations in Philadelphia's history. So I think that really captures the mood of the people so much. Yeah. And Nicole, I was with you because we're here in Washington, D.C., Before Monday, June 1st, there were mass protests every night outside of the White House. The White House had become like a fortress. There was large police forces. And, you know, the police were just lobbing tear gas canister one round after another against people who were not doing anything. And then June 1st came and Trump has this call with the governors, well-publicized call, and he's trying to invoke the Insurrection Act and saying, we're going to take over the cities. And I think Mark Esper said we have to dominate the battle space, but the battle space was actually the cities and towns of the United States where people were exercising constitutional rights to speak out. You were there when Trump decided he needed to clear the area in order to hold up that Bible in front of St. John's Church. Again, a defining moment, but you were there. Talk about, with some level of specificity, What actually happened and what happened to you? I was there. I was there as press. I had my press pass around my neck. There was a lot of press there and there were a lot of protesters there. Lots of people in the street. This is right in front of the White House on H Street. Lots and lots of people, thousands and thousands of people protesting, chanting, chanting the names of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, so many others who have been killed by police. And very, very suddenly, a very intense and very large group of police started charging around the corner from the White House toward the crowd, spraying tear gas, starting to hit people with rubber bullets and stinger grenades. So there was a huge, very thick, you know, three cops deep line that was charging towards the crowd. And as they were doing that, there was military police behind a fence because the White House was all fenced off at this point. They were behind the fence and they were shooting people from behind the fence with these military police vests on. They were shooting people with stinger grenades and again with rubber bullets, which are, of course, rubber coated steel bullets. You know, I watched very similar things that Walter mentioned. One cop shoved a young woman down, sprayed her with tear gas. I remember so vividly, she just kept looking at them and yelling, why? I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. You know, they eventually paused after a few minutes and they stood in a line, stood in place. And so people were calling for medics. Medics were helping people who had been tear gassed. And the rest of the crowd recovered and walked back toward the police line. A lot of them kneeled. A lot of them kneeled saying, we're peaceful protesters. We're here to peacefully protest. We're here to protest and exercise our First Amendment. And they were kneeling, literally kneeling, black teenagers kneeling in front of the police lines, clearly showing we are not a threat to you. We are here to protest. And again, the police lines pushed forward again, spraying tear gas, spraying rounds of stinger grenades and rubber bullets. I was hit at that point 
I was there filming and trying to get footage of what was happening. When I was hit with a round of stinger grenades and a rubber bullet, I still have a scar on my calf from the military police, again, who were behind a fence. They weren't even on the street with us. They were behind a fence, totally protected, as well as, of course, decked out in their protective bulletproof gear. And, you know, this continued, this pattern of push forward, spray everyone with tear gas. They started throwing sound cannons. At some point, the park police came out on their horses, you know, to threaten trampling people with these big horses and horse hooves. And this continued until they had cleared H Street, cleared the street in front of the church where we later found out none of us had any, or I didn't have any clue at the time what was happening until I called you, Brian. But we later found out that what was happening was Trump wanted that block cleared so that he could go stand in front of a church across the street from the White House, hold a Bible and have a photo op. But instead... What he had was on cable TV, on the news everywhere, there were dual screens. There were there was one screen showing him with his photo op, and the other screen was showing the sound grenades, the terrifying, awful, horrendous sound grenades, the tear gassing, the shoving people down. I was shoved at one point and suffered some pretty serious injuries I'm still dealing with. You know, a lot of people were shoved, were thrown down, were tear gassed. It was horrendous repression, and it continued until people were completely out of the main block. And so I think because of the fact that news actually covered it, because the news was there and was being attacked as well. Again, I was a journalist, but other people were also attacked. But also because there were so many people there, so many protesters there who saw what happened, who were a part of what happened, that the next night, it was even bigger. I went out the next night and the next night after that and the next night after that, as did so many people, and the crowds just grew. They grew and grew until that Sunday, you know, there were tens of thousands in the streets. The whole city was packed full of people because they were rightfully outraged at what had happened. They were too mad to be scared. They were too mad to sit inside. They were angry and they were frustrated by what was happening. It's so, so important to go over these stories, to remember them, not to simply generalize history, but to recognize exactly what happened, why it happened, and how the reaction of the people makes all the difference. Our whole concept here, the whole concept of the socialist program, of socialist organizing, of social justice organizing, our entire sort of vision or concept, you know, can be boiled down to we believe that the people, once they act and once they act together, once they know they can make a difference, and once they come out in great numbers, they are the power. That doesn't mean we won. That doesn't mean that, you know, the system of racist policing came to an end, but it was a sort of a microcosm or a moment where it demonstrated the power of the people. And, you know, later when people go out of the streets, when the movement ebbs, as all movements do ebb, you know, they go up and they go down, the way they continue really is if there's an organization that becomes the sort of the class memory, the organized memory of the event to learn the lessons so that each time the movement comes up again, it's not starting from scratch. There's an organization, there are organizers, there are cadres who are able to, you know, sort of build on what came before it. But the vision of change is from the people. And let's just go forward to what's happening in the last couple of weeks. I mean, you had the Israelis Bombing Gaza again, that's not unusual. In 2002, the Israelis reinvaded the West Bank and carried out horrible massacres against the occupied West Bank. In 2006, the Israelis invaded Lebanon. In 2008, the Israelis bombed and carried out war against Gaza, and they did it again in 2012, and an even bigger war in 2014. They have systematically fragmented and destroyed Palestinian organizers and organizations. The face of the Palestinian resistance has changed a great deal over the last two decades as a consequence of fierce, murderous, illegal criminal repression by the Israeli government. The West Bank has been completely dissected by the settler regime settlements, illegal. It looks over time that the Palestinian people are just being defeated. But the Palestinian people, while they have suffered so much, haven't been defeated because their resilience, their endurance, their steadfastness is in fact associated with what it means to be Palestinian. And whether you're in 
Gaza or the West Bank or Jerusalem or the Arab cities of Israel, or whether you're in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, New York City, anywhere in the world, you're part of this people who are one people whose consciousness has inspired the rest of the world. And in the last two weeks, demonstrations larger than anything that's ever happened in American history have taken place. When Biden went to Detroit, 150,000 people came out. Huge demonstrations in Chicago, Los Angeles, Washington, New York City. I'm looking at the Washington Post, Esther, from Ferguson to Palestine. This is the Washington Post. It's not Liberation News. From Ferguson to Palestine, how Black Lives Matter changed the U.S. debate on the Middle East. And it's a picture of these massive protests for Palestine. The caption under the picture, an activist holds a free Palestine flag at a Black Lives Matter rally last week in Pasadena, California. This, too, has, you know, it's a demonstration of how things happen, how change happens. Anyway, I want to get your thoughts, Esther, and then also Walter and Nicole. We want to talk about how the Palestinian people, in spite of the fact that they suffered so much, were in the streets in Jerusalem celebrating their resilience, their endurance, and what is perceived to be a major setback and defeat for the Israeli regime. It's so interesting that you mentioned that article, Brian, because I was just looking at it again myself, and I was struck by a piece in it that talked about a quote from Congresswoman Cori Bush from Missouri, who was you know, very active in the uprising during Ferguson in the Black Lives Matter movement there. And she talked about military occupation, policing, and apartheid, referring to Israel. And the article felt it necessary to say that these are terms rejected by many other Democrats. And it reminded me that the battle right now is over facts and truth. And the fact that Israel has been defeated, really, in this long narrative that it has spun, you know, in cooperation with the United States and Europe, that has painted the what's happening in Israel as a conflict between Palestinians and Israel, as opposed to what she said, military occupation, policing and apartheid. And of course, what the movement for Black Lives in this past year has also indicated and brought us to understand is that it's also about settler colonialism. And that's a term that no one wants to use in terms of Israel or the United States. And we know that these are the two major states that are settler colonial states. And so I believe that an important fact of the last year is that the movement extended the narrative past the murder of George Floyd, past even the United States, to look at the whole world, including Palestine, and as I said before, the whole issue of settler colonialism, and also to include apartheid. So I want us to play a clip from the attorney and human rights activist Nora Ericott speaking on Democracy Now! last week, where she kind of ties together some of this history that which you mentioned is so important because we can't just start in the moment. We have to look back in history and understand how movements in the past have brought us to this point. Israel does not have the right to self-defense against a population that it occupies. It cannot assert enforcement, law enforcement power from the native population, impose a siege, govern the airspace, govern the seaports, govern the perimeter, govern entrance and exit, govern how much caloric intake Palestinians have, and then shoot missiles onto a besieged population. It cannot do both. This has been established by legal scholars such as Christine Gray on the law of self-defense. It is an old trope that was condemned in the 1970s when Portugal, South Africa and Israel tried to claim the right to self-defense in order to protect its colonial territories. You cannot dominate another people and then use the claim of self-defense in order to protect that domination. Israel is not protecting itself or its citizens. It is protecting its domination. It is protecting its occupation. So the first thing that needs to happen in the aftermath, one, this is a form of aggression, but the first thing that needs to happen in any outcome after this is that the siege must 
be lifted. We cannot endure another scene like this, another massacre where it becomes theater for politics and news media, and then not demand that the siege be lifted as the bare minimum of what happens next. Yeah, so that's Nora Erica speaking on Democracy Now! I was listening to that. I was just thinking you can apply those same ideas to the United States right now, that the police are protecting their domination, their historical policing, the oppression of people of color, of working people, and the state is reinforcing their ability to do that. The struggle right now is whether we are going to be able to control these police forces that we fund our tax dollars, yet they're coming into our communities and killing us and brutalizing us, reinforcing the conditions of the state that are oppressive in our lives. Yeah, you know, Esther, I mean, that makes me think of another one of these big takeaways, these big lessons that I think people can draw from this one year of uprising against racist police terror in the United States and how it's been impactful on so many other issues, consciousness around so many other issues. So, I mean, going back to Philadelphia and the experience over the summer, I mean, another thing that happened was that the police launched an armed military-style assault on a residential Black neighborhood in West Philadelphia. I mean, as part of their campaign of terror to put down the uprising, cops drove around in armored vehicles, launching tear gas along this crowded commercial corridor into people's homes, onto people's front lawns. People were hiding from tear gas that was seeping into their homes through their windows. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible attack. Now, if you live in that neighborhood, if that happens to you, you don't need to read anything. You don't need to talk to anybody to know that the people who did that, the police force that was responsible for that atrocity, is your enemy. They don't have your best interests at heart. And it spontaneously occurs to you that you should struggle against them, against their oppression that's coming right to your doorstep. But then once you're in that world, once you've joined the political struggle, you become hungry for knowledge about every facet of this system, how this system operates, its history, how it operates both domestically and internationally. And you form organizations around the conclusions that you draw to those questions, around the ideologies, the political ideology, understanding of the world that you draw from that study. And then those organizations go out and promote those ideologies, those ideas, that way of understanding the world. And then that becomes the entry point for so many other waves, layers of activists to join the movement and become inculcated, become an advocate of a worldview, of a revolutionary radical worldview. And I think that's what's been happening with Palestine. I mean, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of people who I think have been introduced to the idea of Palestine in just the last year or so from the point of view of being an anti-racist person. It becomes obvious to anybody, even if you haven't studied extensively the history of the Middle East or the history of the Palestinian people or the Zionist colonial project, it becomes obvious to you if you're an anti-racist person, then a logical and necessary and essential extension of that is that you support the Palestinian people because the uprising against racism in this country is one that has a radical ideology, that has radical ideas behind it. And one big component of that is international solidarity with peoples who have similar struggles to the one being waged here in the United States. Well, there's one other part of this issue about consciousness and how consciousness changes and how that becomes the the force for change when people start to think differently and act differently. And their thinking changes as a consequence of struggle. And right now in the world we live in, the struggle isn't simply in one country or another country. It really is a global struggle for justice. And part of the military equation here in Palestine, and that which Israel is banking on and the U.S. is banking on because the U.S. finances the Israeli aggression, is that the Israelis have a stronger military power than their rivals, the people they're trying to occupy. And as a consequence, their military supremacy will dictate the outcome. That's what they're banking on. On the Palestinian side, they can look at the situation and say, we don't control the airspace, we don't control our own borders, we have problems getting military equipment in, the Israelis are highly financed and well-equipped military. 
But what we do have is international solidarity. And if that international solidarity grows, that international solidarity can have a profound impact on Israel. The way the solidarity will manifest is through the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. The Israelis know this full well. They know it because they have the experience of what happened to the racist, fascist, apartheid government in South Africa, which also seemed to be militarily omnipotent compared to its neighbors. But the global movement awoke and took action to boycott South Africa, and that changed the relationship of forces. That's why the Israeli government and their supporters in the United States treat this peaceful movement to boycott Israel as the greatest threat of all. And that's why in state after state after state, legislators, reactionary legislators, are imposing laws that criminalize the support for a boycott of Israel, just as the laws in the Deep South. Martin Luther King Jr. went to jail for boycotting racist, segregationist business establishments because there were anti-boycott laws in these states. Eventually, they were ruled unconstitutional, but here they are again, this time in support of a foreign government, the Israeli government. Breaking news. The Partnership for Civil Justice Fund and the Council of American Islamic Relations Care win, quote, major victory in federal lawsuit against Georgia's anti-Israel boycott law. Court rules anti-BDS law violates the First Amendment. This is very profound, very precedent-setting. And the lawsuit was brought by our friend and journalist, Abby Martin, who was herself unable to work in the state of Georgia, had her contract canceled because she refused to sign an Israeli loyalty oath where she pledged that she would never boycott the state of Israel. Now, these laws, again, are not just in Georgia. They're all over the country. I'm going to read from a press release put out by both legal organizations, the lawyers from CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, and the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. Here it is. The Georgia chapter of the Council of American Islamic Relations Legal Defense Fund and the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund today welcomed a major victory in their lawsuit against Georgia's Israel boycott law after a federal district court ruled that the state of Georgia's 2016 law punishing boycotts of Israel is an unconstitutional violation of the First Amendment. In an order released today, this press release is from yesterday, in an order released today, Judge Mark Cohen ruled that the university system of Georgia violated journalist and filmmaker Abby Martin's constitutional rights when it canceled her speaking engagement on a college campus because she refused to sign a state-mandated oath pledging not to engage in boycotts of Israel. Martin is a well-known advocate of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions BDS movement against Israel, which the court ruled is protected by the First Amendment. This is huge because the Israeli settler regime and their U.S. patrons know that if the American people are part of the global movement and this global movement enforces a real boycott of Israel, that Israel's days as an apartheid regime, just like the South African racist apartheid government's days, would be numbered because apartheid won't hold up to a global boycott. The laws are designed to criminalize the exercise of free speech rights to participate and advocate for a boycott. This ruling in Georgia on behalf of Abby Martin couldn't be more important. Absolutely, Brian. And it underscores the importance of journalism, the importance of journalists and Again, battling this narrative, this false narrative that Israel and the United States has been able to unwind for so long about Israel being the only democracy in the Middle East. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, the U.S. really is the major backer of both of these apartheid states, you know, South Africa and Israel. And that means that people in the United States have a major role to play in doing exactly what you just described, reinforcing the BDS movement. But I also wanted to talk about the role that we can play in terms of being journalists and supporting journalists. So I just wanted to make sure we mentioned the case of Emily Wilder, just fired from the Associated Press, for being a Palestinian rights activist when she
when she was in college just a couple years ago. So this is a young woman, 22 years old. And because she was an activist in college, a member of Jewish Voice for Peace, you know, she's Jewish, part of another group advocating for the rights of Palestinians, some right wing Republican group at Stanford was able to kind of put out these tweets, you know, repeating these tweets that she put out when she was in college. And so there's this big uproar among journalists right now, journalists at the Associated Press coming out in her defense and journalists around the country really denouncing this firing because, you know, it really sets this more nationally known precedent for someone being targeted because of their activism in college. We have a whole generation of people right now who are activists around Black Lives Matter. Does that mean that they can't be journalists? So, you know, those of us who are veterans of corporate media or, you know, exiles from corporate media understand that this type of targeting has been going on for a while. And young Palestinian activists in college they know that they've been targeted by these outfits like Canary Mission, outfits designed to destroy their lives because they are standing up for the rights of Palestinian people. So the BDS movement is important, but it's also this real war on for information and truth right now that I know we're trying to engage in on the socialist program. And that's one reason that this ruling, I think, is, as you were saying, Esther and Brian, just a really, really important, you know, this seems so basic to the rest of us that somebody especially a very proven and tested journalist like Abby Martin, should be able to go and speak somewhere when a group has requested her to do so and she's you know, speaking the truth. She should be able to do that without signing some sort of oath. I mean, that's just a basic thing. But of course, the court system so rarely actually rules in our favor unless you know, there's a people's movement behind it. And so I think this ruling is just so incredible and such a huge victory. Let's move on, but I want to move on by continuing to talk about Palestine in the Middle East. Obviously, there is a ceasefire. There's also vicious, organized, premeditated repression by the Israeli authorities against Arab and Palestinian people in Jerusalem and elsewhere because people are celebrating the ceasefire. I mean, that's part of it. But Blinken is there. Blinken was sent by Biden, obviously Biden allowed, you know, didn't support a ceasefire day after day after day, and then finally put his foot down last week, told Netanyahu we expected a de-escalation. And sure enough, like a day later, there's a ceasefire. But Blinken is there. And again, while consciousness is changing on the ground in the United States, and while even in the US Congress, it's not enough and it's not strong enough, but the fact that some parts of the U.S. Congress, some Congress people are calling Israel an apartheid state. All of those are new developments in American politics. But then I want to play this audio clip from Blinken. He's standing with Netanyahu. It shows that the U.S. government is still joined at the hip with the Israeli regime. Let's listen. President Biden asked me to, uh, uh, to come here today really for four, uh, four reasons. First, to demonstrate the commitment of the United States to Israel's security, to start to work toward greater stability and reduce tensions in the West Bank uh, and Jerusalem, to support urgent humanitarian and reconstruction assistance for Gaza to benefit the Palestinian people, and to continue to rebuild our relationship with the Palestinian people and the Palestinian Authority. Intense uh, behind-the-scenes uh, diplomacy led by President Biden, working very closely with, um, with the Prime Minister, helped produce last week's ceasefire. Now we believe we must uh, build on it. I find that truly disgusting, Walter. Reduce tensions in Jerusalem? Well, there's a way to do that. Not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which is a violation of international law. Stop the forcible eviction of Palestinians from their home in Jerusalem. But all of this, oh, we're going to reduce tensions, this equivalency, as if there's just tension between Arab people and Israeli Jews. That's not what it's about. It's about the colonial cleansing or removal, eviction of people from their homes by a settler colonial project. And then he says, we're going to rebuild Gaza, but he won't go to Gaza. He won't talk to Hamas. Hamas is the elected government in Gaza. And because the U.S. designates Hamas as a terrorist organization, there's no contact. Even though the U.S. government was under such immense global pressure, including pressure inside the United States, to do something to stop the Israeli aggression against Gaza, and finally Biden acted, even though that was the reality, the fact of the matter is the United States is standing 
with the state of Israel against the Palestinian people. And at the same time, the Palestinian people struggle for justice, for self-determination. It has gone up. Everyone in Palestine recognizes that in spite of the fact that there was so much suffering and killing and destruction by the Israelis, the Israelis did not succeed. There's a high sense of support and enthusiasm for unity and struggle in Palestine. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The United States has been and is on the wrong side of this, on the side of apartheid and oppression and colonialism against the Palestinian people who are simply asserting the basic rights that any people have. And I mean, in terms of the way that Blinken talks about this, yeah, I completely agree. I hate it. I think it's so ridiculous how diplomats, politicians, media pundits talk about this like it's the most complicated, convoluted thing in the world. And only through years and years of careful diplomacy can we even make any headway. I mean, the issue of Palestine and the Palestinian people is actually one of the easier things about international politics to understand. It's very straightforward. There were a people living on their land, the Palestinians, who were displaced by a colonial enterprise, a colonial project called Israel that had, as is the case with all colonial projects, as its goal, the eviction of the indigenous peoples from their land to make way for a settler population. And then that colonial enterprise was so successful in large part, in very large part, because of the sponsorship of the U.S. empire. The United States gives nearly $4 billion every year to the Israeli armed forces, the Israeli military. They carry out airstrikes on schools and hospitals and residential neighborhoods in Gaza to the Israeli police forces that carry out brutal, deadly repression against protesters in the West Bank and the majority Palestinian cities inside of the 1948 borders of Israel. I mean, it's all paid for by the United States. And you know what? The U.S. empire has gotten their money worth over the years because Israel has been consistently aggressive towards any progressive, anti-imperialist, pro-self-determination movement that's emerged in the entire Middle East. So this is the relationship here. And I think that, I mean, as we're talking about, there's this growing demand around the world and and very notably inside of the United States, demanding that the U.S. sever that relationship, that they stop funding apartheid war crimes committed by the Israeli government against the Palestinian people. Jewish Voices for Peace, a very growing organization, mainly of young Jewish Americans, has been protesting against Israeli policies for some time. But in the last couple of years, not simply saying this or that policy of the Israeli government is bad, but in fact, the project is, as you described it, Walter, a colonial project. Here's a statement that they issued when they finally changed their position on whether or not to support the state of Israel as a state. In other words, do they support Zionism, which was mainly opposed by European Jewry before World War II, conflates Jewish people and Judaism with the state of Israel? And Jewish Voices for Peace says, no, we are Jewish people, but we do not simply disagree with or criticize the policies of Benjamin Netanyahu. We don't believe in the justice of the project itself because it's, in fact, the theft of the land of the indigenous Palestinian people. Here's what Jewish Voices for Peace wrote. Jewish Voices for Peace is guided by a vision of justice, equality, and freedom for all people. We unequivocally oppose Zionism because it's counter to those ideals. Now, that's so significant, and it really is because once the propaganda is stripped away, once you actually look at the facts on the ground, The Zionist project isn't really about the defense of Jewish people. It's about the theft of the land of the Arab and Palestinian people. Again, most European Jews who were looking to emigrate at the end of World War II, they were looking to emigrate from Germany or Poland or France. They weren't looking to go to the Middle East. They were from industrially advanced societies. But the United States closed the doors to Jewish emigration from Europe. The United States government policy closed the doors, and so did the other Western capitalist governments. They didn't care about Jewish people. They didn't bomb the railroad tracks that the Hitler regime and the Nazis were using to transport Jewish peoples and others to the death camps, to the gas chambers. 
The U.S. government didn't care at all. But the project of Zionism was an extension of Western colonialism. Yes, the Zionist ruling class has its own interests, but the West supported this state because, in fact, it was an extension of U.S. power. And since 1967, it's been an extension of U.S. power in particular when the United States decided to fasten itself to the Israeli military, fund the Israeli military. And Walter, you mentioned the billions of dollars that the U.S. gives to Israel every year. In a lot of ways, truth be told, those are like prepaid vouchers so that the Israeli government can buy American warplanes and American weapons. In other words, it's a subsidy too for the U.S. military industrial complex. So anyway, Nicole, we have to start to wrap up, but I think that the issue with Palestine, it's not going to go away. It's like one of those moments where if you have members of Congress and others in the media starting to describe the Israeli project as an apartheid regime, you can't really walk that back. You can't say, oh, I changed my mind. It's not an apartheid regime. It is an apartheid regime. And, you know, as Dr. Martin Luther King said, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but bends in the direction of justice. Again, I don't believe the universe has a moral compass, but I think his point is right, that over time, just as happened in South Africa, the movement for change in society dominates and the arc is in the direction of justice. It will continue to be in the direction of justice because, you know, when people are oppressed like this, they stand up and fight back. That's what we've seen time and time and time again, not just in Palestine, but globally. And I think what you're saying, Brian, is exactly right, that we're watching the bombardment of huge numbers of missiles and, you know, rockets and bombs that are being dropped on Gaza is paused for now, thankfully. And I'm sure there is a huge relief in Gaza that that's the case, but the siege is not lifted. And there is apartheid, not just in Gaza, I mean, which is just an open air prison where even the electricity that comes into Gaza is controlled by Israel, but all over historic Palestine, anywhere Palestinians live, they are treated under a different series and set of laws. They are treated very, very differently with far, far fewer rights than their Israeli Jewish counterparts, even if they're Palestinian Israeli citizens they still are living under a completely different set of laws. So, I mean, that is the very definition of apartheid. And I think it's very clear that the fight will continue even, you know, with more unity from the Palestinians in all the different regions of historic Palestine. So I think that's exactly right, Brian. So I also wanted to add that I've been speaking to some of the young people in the Palestinian youth movement who've been organizing these massive demonstrations, not only here in the United States, but around the world. So I think it's really important to lift up their voices. And one of the activists said something that I think is really profound. She said that it's important to know that the Palestinian issue is not a humanitarian issue. And I thought about that when you played the clip by Anthony Blinken and also, you know, Netanyahu was speaking at the same press conference. She said that the Palestinian struggle is a struggle for liberation. And that they also remind us that the ceasefire really changed nothing on the ground because that same day or the day after Israeli forces stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque again you know, that they backed Israeli settlers to go into that mosque and attack worshipers. And this is one of the key things that spurred this recent uprising that armed Israeli settlers are allowed to go into Sheikh Jarrah, which is another flashpoint that sparked this latest uprising. And so they're very clear that the ceasefire didn't change nothing on the ground. And I just wanted to say finally, in terms of reiterating this issue around people telling facts and the truth, as opposed to obscuring and changing facts that we know are true in history, that just the same way that they call the ANC in South Africa living under apartheid in South Africa terrorists, they're calling the Palestinian resistance terrorists. And this is part of the propaganda machine of not only Israel, but the United States. And we have to understand that the Palestinians have a right to resist. And the same way that they are trying to rewrite history and call those same peaceful Black Lives Matter protests violent, 
you know, they are calling the Palestinians violent for resisting. Even when they go to the fence peacefully during the Great March of Return and they're shot in the head, shot in the legs, more than 200 people killed, thousands wounded when they were in a peaceful march. And just like we were talking about peaceful protesters here attacked. And just so we can remind ourselves as we go forward and we continue to hear these lies and continue to see the way that all these movements of resistance are characterized as violent, while at the same time, the right wing here tries to excuse January 6th and obvious fascist movements. And we have to be really vigilant around these narratives and make sure that we continue to present the facts. That's so, so important, Esther. You know, the whole process of change is people are engaged in struggle, and once they're struggling, they want to learn. They need materials. They need to listen to podcasts or read books or go to websites. Their ideas suddenly, quickly shift and change, and then they become stronger. They become organizers themselves. People who weren't political become political, and they become leaders. Like, that's the whole process. But education is key to this process. The facts, as you said, are key to it. Walter, you are, as we've said in the past weeks, the editor of Liberation News website, an extremely educational place. People can learn about Palestine and so many different issues. In order to provide more education, I know the website that you edited also was providing free ebooks of Richard Becker's book, Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire. Talk about that for a second. And what else happened in your Liberation News newsletter that people can sign up for? Yeah, thank you, Brian. As always, go to liberationnews.org. There's daily updates about breaking developments, about issues that you won't read about in the mainstream media. Our newsletter comes out every Monday. It's got highlights from the previous week's coverage. You can sign up for that, liberationnews.org, front and center. Sign up for Liberation's newsletter at the top. So the book that you mentioned, Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire, was available for free for a limited time. We had tons and tons of people download it free as an ebook. That promotion is over, but I really want to encourage everybody to go to palestinebook.com, palestinebook.com, and you can still get a copy there. It's an excellent introduction to the struggle for Palestinian liberation beginnings of the Zionist project up until the struggle today. The same author of that book, Richard Becker, also has a new article in Liberation News. It's titled, Palestinians Endure, Resist After 11 Days of U.S.-Backed Israeli Massacre. You can read all the details about how the massacre, the 11-day massacre, transpired, how there was heroic resistance to it, and how it ultimately came to a close. One other article I want to recommend on Liberation News, it's titled Organizing for Union Power Slate Wins San Francisco Teachers Union Elections. There's a very exciting development for the labor movement, this extremely exciting, dedicated group of teacher activists called the Organizing for Union Power Slate won in a very convincing fashion the election for the teachers union in San Francisco. Can't wait to see what this group of labor movement leaders do in the near future. You can check out that article too. Well, as we go out, Nicole, Esther, Walter, I want to just mention one part of what we're talking about. This has been a show based on the optimism that we can observe and that we're part of the optimism of people making change, people struggling for justice here and all over the world. From our point of view, the U.S. working class movement, the movement of poor people, the movement of oppressed people, the movement of people suffering from racism, we're not a, quote, U.S. movement, but we are one detachment in the global movement of the working class for justice. And that means a movement against imperialism, against colonialism, against racism, and against the oppression of working people everywhere. While we're struggling, and I'm going to go out with this, it seems odd, but I want to go out with this. While we're struggling for change and we can see the possibility of change, we also recognize that the forces of reaction aren't going to give up without a struggle. This is going to be an intensifying struggle. I'm looking at news reports that in Montgomery County, which is very close to where we are here in Washington, D.C., 
the police union in Montgomery County is suing this county in Maryland because the new regulations impose restrictions on the amount of police violence. The new regulations, as a consequence of the nationwide movement for reform, police reform or change or abolition of police, the new regulations prohibit the police from choking people to death, prohibit the police from using these other kind of chokeholds that either kill or disable people. It prohibits them from shooting people when they run away. And so the Fraternal Order of Police is actually filing a lawsuit demanding that they have the right to choke people to death, that they have the right to shoot people who are fleeing them. And it's so emblematic of the fact that the police in America have been so privileged, so empowered, and so relied upon by the capitalist ruling class that they're not going to give up without a struggle. And so our movement, taking this education, taking this knowledge, taking these facts, whether it's fighting police repression and violence and racism at home or in support of the Palestinian people abroad, we have to recognize that our movement has to grow, it has to develop new leaders, it has to get stronger, and it has to be better organized. So when we do the socialist program every week, we're not simply trying to provide education and perspective, we're trying to build this movement. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.